Chapter 14 Jim Simons liked making money. He enjoyed spending it, too. Stepping down from Renaissance gave Simons, who by then was worth about $11 billion, more time on his 220-foot yacht, Archimedes. Named for the Greek mathematician and inventor, the $100 million vessel featured a formal dining room that sat 20, a wood-burning fireplace, a spacious jacuzzi, and a grand piano. Sometimes, Simons flew friends on his Gulfstream G450 to a foreign location, where they joined Jim and Marilyn on the superyacht. The ship's presence drew the attention of local media, making the aging and still secretive mathematician unlikely international tabloid fodder. He was very down-to-earth, a taxi driver named Kenny McRae told the Scottish Sun when Simons and some guests visited in Stornoway, Scotland, docking for a day trip. He gave me a reasonable tip, too. Several years later, when Simons visited Bristol, England, the BBC speculated that Simons might be in town to purchase a British soccer team, the Archimedes became one of the largest ships ever to visit the city. Back home, Simons lived in a $50 million apartment in a limestone pre-war Fifth Avenue building with stunning Central Park views. Some mornings, Simons bumped into George Soros, a neighbor in the building. Years earlier, Marilyn had carved out space in her dressing room to launch a family foundation. Over time, she and Jim gave over $300 million to Stony Brook University, among other institutions. As Simons edged away from Renaissance, he became more personally involved in their philanthropy. More than anything, Simons relished tackling big problems. Soon, he was working with Marilyn to target two areas in dire need of solutions, autism research and mathematics education. In 2003, Simons, who was dealing with a family member who had been diagnosed with autism, convened a roundtable of top scientists to discuss the developmental disease. He committed $100 million to fund new research, becoming the largest private donor in the field. Three years later, Simons tapped Columbia University neurobiologist Gerald Fishbach to expand his efforts. Over several years, the team established a repository of genetic samples from thousands of individuals with autism, as well as their family members, which they called the Simons Simplex Collection. The project would help scientists identify over 100 genes related to autism and improve the understanding of the disease's biology. Research driven by the foundation would discover mutations believed to play a role in the disorder. Separately, as technology and finance companies scooped up those with strong mathematics backgrounds, Simons became disturbed by how many math teachers in U.S. public schools had limited education in the area themselves. Earlier in the decade, Simons had traveled to Washington, D.C. to pitch the idea of providing stipends for the best mathematics teachers to reduce their temptation to join private industry. In a matter of minutes, Simons persuaded Chuck Schumer, the influential Democratic senator from New York, to support the proposal. That's a great idea, Schumer boomed. We'll get right on it. Elated, Simons and a colleague plopped down on a couch outside Schumer's office. As a different group got off the couch to enter Schumer's office, Simons listened to their pitch and the senator's response. That's a great idea. We'll get right on it, Schumer said once again. Simons realized he couldn't count on politicians. In 2004, he helped launch Math for America, 
a nonprofit dedicated to promoting math education and supporting outstanding teachers. Eventually, the foundation would spend millions of dollars annually to provide annual stipends of $15,000 to 1,000 top math and science teachers in New York's public middle schools and high schools, or about 10% of the city's teachers in the subjects. It also hosted seminars and workshops, creating a community of enthusiastic teachers. Instead of beating up the bad teachers, we focus on celebrating the good ones, Simon says. We give them status and money, and they stay in the field. Simons remained Renaissance's chairman and main shareholder, staying in regular contact with Brown, Mercer, and others. In reflective moments, Simons sometimes acknowledged having difficulty transitioning from the firm. I feel irrelevant, he told Marilyn one day. With time, Simons would find his philanthropic ventures as challenging as those he had encountered in mathematics and financial markets, lifting his spirits. David Magerman moved with his wife and three young children to a Philadelphia suburb, searching for new meaning in his own life and perhaps a bit of peace after all those clashes at Renaissance. Magerman was eager to make a positive impact on society. Unlike Simons, who never had qualms about Renaissance's work, Magerman felt misgivings, even a bit of guilt. Magerman had devoted years of his life to helping Renaissance's wealthy employees become even richer. Now he wanted to help others. Magerman didn't have Simons' billions, but he left Renaissance with well over $50 million, thanks to years of hefty bonuses and an enormous return on his investment in the Medallion Fund. Magerman, who was beginning to adopt a modern Orthodox lifestyle, began giving millions of dollars to needy students and Jewish day schools in the area, which had been hit hard by the 2008 economic downturn. Eventually, Magerman started his own foundation and a high school. His new life didn't bring much serenity, however. Magerman brought his strong opinions to the world of philanthropy, insisting on so many requirements and conditions that some local leaders turned his money down, leading to hurt feelings. At one point, he was caught in a screaming match with a group of middle school parents. Magerman joined the faculty of his alma mater, the University of Pennsylvania, lecturing in the Electrical and Systems Engineering Department and giving a course on quantitative portfolio management. Disagreements arose there, too. The kids didn't like me, I didn't like them, he says. Magerman helped finance a Will Ferrell movie called Everything Must Go, which received decent reviews but disappointed Magerman, who never saw a final cut. He agreed to watch another film he financed, Café, starring Jennifer Love Hewitt, hosting the actor and her boyfriend in his home theater. But Magerman wasn't a fan of that film either. For all his faults, Magerman was the rare quant blessed with a degree of self-awareness. He began working with a therapist to eliminate, or at least tone down, his confrontational behavior, and he seemed to make progress. By 2010, two years after leaving Renaissance, Magerman was itching to return. He missed computer programming and was a bit bored, but he also didn't want to uproot his family again. Magerman got in touch with Peter Brown and worked out an arrangement to work remotely from home a perfect solution for someone who couldn't seem to avoid personal squabbles. When he quit, Magerman had overseen the software responsible for executing all of Renaissance's computerized stock trades. Now Kononenko was running the effort, and it was racking up big gains. 
a return to that group was untenable. Instead, Megerman began doing research for Renaissance's bond, commodity, and currency trading business. Soon, he was again participating in key meetings, his booming and insistent voice piped into speakers from the ceilings of Renaissance's conference rooms, an effect colleagues joked was like listening to the voice of God. You can't win for trying sometimes, Megerman says. He returned to a firm on more solid ground than he had expected. Renaissance wasn't quite as collegial as it had been in the past, but the team still worked well together, perhaps even with a greater sense of urgency. By then, RIEF's returns had improved enough for Brown and Mercer to decide to keep it open for business, along with the newer fund, RIFF. The two funds managed a combined $6 billion, down from over $30 billion three years earlier, but at least investors had stopped fleeing. Medallion, still only available to employees, remained the heart of the firm. It now managed about $10 billion and was scoring annual gains of approximately 65% before the investor fees, resulting in near-record profits. Medallion's long-term record was arguably the greatest in the history of the financial markets, a reason investors and others were becoming fascinated with the secretive firm. There's Renaissance Technologies, and then there's everyone else, The Economist said in 2010. Medallion still held thousands of long and short positions at any time, and its holding period ranged from one or two days to one or two weeks. The fund did even faster trades, described by some as high frequency, but many of those were for hedging purposes or to gradually build its positions. Renaissance still placed an emphasis on cleaning and collecting its data, but it had refined its risk management and other trading techniques. I'm not sure we're the best at all aspects of trading, but we're the best at estimating the cost of a trade, Simons told a colleague a couple years earlier. In some ways, the Renaissance machine was more powerful than before Megerman quit. The company now employed about 250 staffers and over 60 PhDs, including experts in artificial intelligence, quantum physicists, computational linguists, statisticians, and number theorists as well as other scientists and mathematicians. Astronomers, who are accustomed to scrutinizing large, confusing data sets and discovering evidence of subtle phenomena, proved especially capable of identifying overlooked market patterns. Elizabeth Barton, for example, received her PhD from Harvard University and used telescopes in Hawaii and elsewhere to study the evolution of galaxies before joining Renaissance. As it slowly became a bit more diverse, the firm also hired Julia Kemp, a former student of Elwin Burlikamp and an expert in quantum computing. Medallion still did bond, commodity, and currency trades, and it made money from trending and reversion-predicting signals, including a particularly effective one aptly named Deja Vu. More than ever, though, it was powered by complex equity trades featuring a mixture of complex signals, rather than simple pairs trades such as buying Coke and selling Pepsi. The gains on each trade were never huge, and the fund only got it right a bit more than half the time, but that was more than enough. We're right 50.75% of the time, but we're 100% right 50.75% of the time, Mercer told a friend. You can make billions that way. Mercer likely wasn't sharing his firm's exact trading edge, 
His larger point was that Renaissance enjoyed a slight advantage in its collection of thousands of simultaneous trades, one that was large and consistent enough to make an enormous fortune. Driving these reliable gains was a key insight. Stocks and other investments are influenced by more factors and forces than even the most sophisticated investors appreciated. For example, to predict the direction of a stock like Alphabet, the parent of Google, investors generally try to forecast the company's earnings, the direction of interest rates, the health of the U.S. economy, and the like. Others will anticipate the future of search and online advertising, the outlook for the broader technology industry, the trajectory of global companies, and metrics and ratios related to earnings, book value, and other variables. Renaissance staffers deduced that there is even more that influences investments, including forces not readily apparent or sometimes even logical. By analyzing and estimating hundreds of financial metrics, social media feeds, barometers of online traffic, and pretty much anything that can be quantified and tested, they uncovered new factors, some borderline impossible for most to appreciate. The inefficiencies are so complex they are, in a sense, hidden in the markets in code, a staffer says. Rentech decrypts them. We find them across time, across risk factors, across sectors and industries. Even more important, Renaissance concluded that there are reliable mathematical relationships between all these forces. Applying data science, the researchers achieved a better sense of when various factors were relevant, how they interrelated, and the frequency with which they influenced shares. They also tested and teased out subtle, nuanced mathematical relationships between various shares, what staffers call multidimensional anomalies, that other investors were oblivious to or didn't fully understand. These relationships have to exist, since companies are interconnected in complex ways, says a former Renaissance executive. This interconnectedness is hard to model and predict with accuracy, and it changes over time. Rentech has built a machine to model this interconnectedness, track its behavior over time, and bet on when prices seem out of whack according to these models. Outsiders didn't quite get it, but the real key was the firm's engineering, how it put all those factors and forces together in an automated trading system. The firm bought a certain number of stocks with positive signals, often a combination of more granular individual signals, and shorted, or bet against, stocks with negative signals, moves determined by thousands of lines of source code. There is no individual bet we make that we can explain by saying we think one stock is going to go up or another down, a senior staffer says. Every bet is a function of all the other bets, our risk profile, and what we expect to do in the near and distant future. It's a big, complex optimization based on the premise that we predict the future well enough to make money from our predictions, and that we understand risk, cost, impact, and market structure well enough to leverage the hell out of it. How the firm wagered was at least as important as what it wagered on. If Medallion discovered a profitable signal, for example, that the dollar rose 0.1% between 9 a.m. and 10 a.m., it wouldn't buy when the clock struck 9, potentially signaling to others that a move happened each day at that time. Instead, it spread its buying out throughout the hour in unpredictable ways to preserve its trading signal. Medallion developed methods of trading some of its strongest signals to capacity, as insiders called it, 
moving prices such that competitors couldn't find them. It was a bit like hearing of a huge markdown on a hot item at Target and buying up almost all the discounted merchandise the moment the store opens, so no one else even realizes the sale took place. Once we've been trading a signal for a year, it looks like something different to people who don't know our trades, an insider says. Simon summed up the approach in a 2014 speech in South Korea. It's a very big exercise in machine learning, if you want to look at it that way. Studying the past, understanding what happens, and how it might impinge non-randomly on the future. For a long time, Bob Mercer was a peculiar but largely benign figure within the company. Silver-haired with dark eyebrows, he favored wire-rimmed glasses and high-end shoes. Mercer whistled a lot and teased a few liberal colleagues, but mostly he just spoke with Peter Brown. He comes up with all the ideas, Brown told a colleague, likely with excess modesty. I expressed them. Mercer was truly self-contained. He once told a colleague that he preferred the company of cats to humans. At night, Mercer retreated to his Long Island estate, Owl's Nest, a nod to another creature known for wisdom, calm, and long periods of silence, where he toyed with a $2.7 million model train that ran on a track half the size of a basketball court. In 2009, Mercer sued the manufacturer, claiming he had been overcharged by $700,000. The manufacturer countered that the costs had ballooned after it was asked to finish installing the track in a rush before Mercer's daughter's wedding. I'm happy going through my life without saying anything to anybody, Mercer told the Wall Street Journal in 2010. Those who got to know Mercer understood he was a political conservative, a National Rifle Association member who amassed a collection of machine guns, as well as the gas-operated AR-18 assault rifle used by Arnold Schwarzenegger in The Terminator. Few involved with Renaissance spent much time focusing on these views, however. Bob talked about the need to protect oneself from the government and the need to have guns and gold, says an early investor in the Medallion Fund. I didn't think he was for real. Every year or two, Mercer took a few days off to fly to Ohio State to work on computer projects with colleagues from graduate school. Mercer often treated the group to lunch at a local steakhouse, where he hummed to himself much of the meal, often with a serene smile on his face. When Mercer spoke to the academics about matters unrelated to their project, he often shared a disdain for taxes and a skepticism of climate change, recalls Tim Cooper, a physics professor. Once, Mercer rattled off an array of statistics to demonstrate that nature emits more carbon dioxide than humans. Later, when Cooper checked the data, it was accurate, but Mercer had overlooked the fact that nature absorbs as much carbon dioxide as it emits, which mankind does not. It sounded like someone had got to him, Cooper says. Even a smart guy can get the details right, but the big picture wrong. Until 2008, Mercer's family foundation mostly gave money to fringe causes. Mercer helped fund work by Arthur Robinson, the biochemist in Southern Oregon who was collecting thousands of vials of human urine, which Robinson believed held the key to extending human longevity. Mercer subscribed to Robinson's newsletter, which argued that low levels of nuclear radiation weren't very harmful and could even be beneficial, and that climate science is a hoax. Mercer gave Robinson $1.4 million 
to buy freezers for his urine stockpile. After Barack Obama was elected president in 2008, Mercer, now worth several hundred million dollars, began to make sizable political donations. Two years later, when Robinson ran for Congress, Mercer paid $300,000 for attack ads aimed at his Democratic opponent, Representative Peter DeFazio, who had wanted to close tax loopholes and enact new taxes on certain financial trades. Mercer never told Robinson he was sponsoring the ads. Robinson lost in a surprisingly close race. Mercer's emergence as a high-profile right-wing donor caused a bit of head-scratching within Republican circles. Many serious contributors want something from politicians, and it's usually reasonably clear what they're after. Mercer never asked for much in return for his cash. Political operatives concluded that Mercer was a rare breed, an ideologue driven by long-held principles. He had an intense suspicion of government and resentment of the establishment, at least in part the result of that frustrating summer writing code at the Air Force Base in New Mexico. Like many conservatives, Mercer also had an equally intense loathing of Bill and Hillary Clinton. By the time Mercer turned 64 in 2010, he was convinced government should play a minimal role in society, partly because governments empower incompetence. Mercer had worked in private industry most of his life and hadn't demonstrated much interest in public service, so it wasn't like he had a lot of experience to lean on as he formed this view. Still, policy errors gnawed at him, colleagues said, as did the alleged hypocrisy of elected officials. In conversations, Mercer emphasized the importance of personal freedoms. Some considered him an extreme libertarian. Ayn Rand might have imagined a hero like Mercer, a tall, ruggedly handsome individualist who was a huge fan of capitalism and always rational and in control. Now that he had enormous wealth, Mercer wanted to do something to alter the nation's direction. His timing was perfect. In 2010, the Supreme Court handed down a landmark decision in Citizens United v. Federal Election Commission, ruling that election spending by wealthy donors and others was a form of free speech protected under the First Amendment. The decision paved the way for super PACs, which could accept unlimited amounts of money to support a candidate as long as they didn't officially coordinate with the campaign. After the decision, Simons began donating heavily to Democratic causes, while Mercer stepped up his support for Republican politicians. Mercer's penchant for privacy limited his activity, however, as did his focus on Renaissance. It was his second oldest daughter, Rebecca, who started showing up at conservative fundraising events and other get-togethers, becoming the family's public face and the one driving its political strategy. Rebecca cut a distinctive figure. Becca, as friends and family referred to her, was tall and auburn-haired. She favored glittery, 1950s-style cat's-eye glasses and bore a resemblance to the actor Joan Cusack. A Stanford University graduate in biology and mathematics, Rebecca spent a few years working for Magerman at Renaissance before leaving to homeschool her four children and help run a gourmet cookie store with her sisters. Rebecca first made headlines in the spring of 2010 when she and her then-husband, Sylvain Moroshnikov, spent $28 million to buy six adjoining units in the 41-story Heritage at Trump Place on Manhattan's Upper West Side creating a triplex with 17 bedrooms that was twice the size of Gracie Mansion, 
New York City's mayoral residence. For a while, Rebecca and her father backed traditional right-wing groups and causes, such as the Freedom Partners Action Fund, a conservative political action committee founded by billionaire industrialists Charles and David Koch and the Heritage Foundation. Sometimes, Rebecca and Bob would walk through Republican fundraising events locked arm in arm. Rebecca, the more sociable of the pair, did most of the talking, while her father stood silently beside her. The Mercers quickly lost patience with the established organizations, however, and drifted to more controversial causes, giving $1 million to a group running attack ads against a proposed mosque in the vicinity of the World Trade Center's Ground Zero in Lower Manhattan. Then, in 2011, the Mercers met conservative firebrand Andrew Breitbart at a conference. Almost immediately, they were intrigued with his far-right news organization, Breitbart News Network, expressing interest in funding its operations. Breitbart introduced the Mercers to his friend, Steve Bannon, a former Goldman Sachs banker who drew up a term sheet under which the Mercer family purchased nearly 50% of Breitbart News for $10 million. In March 2012, Breitbart collapsed on a Los Angeles sidewalk and died of heart failure at the age of 43. Bannon and the Mercers convened an emergency meeting in New York to determine the network's future, and decided that Bannon would become the site's executive chairman. Over time, the site became popular with the alt-right, a loose conglomeration of groups, some of which embraced tenets of white supremacy and viewed immigration and multiculturalism as threats. Bannon preferred to call himself an economic nationalist and argued that racist elements would get washed out of the populist movement. After Mitt Romney lost the 2012 presidential election, the Mercers became even more disenchanted with the establishment. That year, Rebecca stood up before a crowd of Romney supporters at the University Club of New York and delivered a scathing and detailed critique of the Republican Party, arguing that its poor data and canvassing operations held candidates back. Rebecca said it was time to save America from becoming like socialist Europe. Bannon helped broker a deal for Mercer to invest in an analytics firm called Cambridge Analytica, the U.S. arm of the British behavioral research company SCL Group. Cambridge Analytica specialized in the kinds of advanced data Mercer was accustomed to parsing at Renaissance, and the type of information that Rebecca said the GOP lacked. She urged organizations that benefited from her family's funds to tap Cambridge's sophisticated technological capabilities. In 2013, Patrick Cadell, a former Democratic pollster who had turned critical of the party, shared data with Bob Mercer, suggesting that voters were becoming alienated from both parties, as well as most mainstream candidates. Mercer asked Cadell to do another round of polling as he collected his own data. Mercer concluded that a major shift was underway. My God, this is a whole new world, he told Cadell. In February 2014, Mercer and other conservative political donors gathered at New York's Pierre Hotel to strategize about the 2016 presidential election. He told attendees he had seen data indicating that mainstream Republicans, such as Jeb Bush and Marco Rubio, would have difficulty winning. Only a true outsider with a sense of the voters' frustrations could emerge victorious, Mercer argued. Others didn't seem as convinced by his data. 
he and Rebecca began searching for an outsider to shake up Washington. It's a philosophical thing, according to Cadell. They think the establishment has failed and is self-serving. For guidance, the Mercers turned to Bannon. At the time, Breitbart's online traffic was soaring, validating their faith in the political provocateur. When Mercer hosted Bannon on his 203-foot yacht, Sea Owl, yet another owl, Bannon wore shorts, cursed freely, belched, and held forth like a close relation, according to some people present. Bannon advised the Mercers on which political and media ventures to invest in and escorted potential beneficiaries to Rebecca's triplex at Trump Place. When asked to comment, Bannon said there are errors of fact in this description of events surrounding the election and his interactions with the Mercers, though he wouldn't specify the inaccuracies. Dude, it's not my fucking book, he said in an email. Mercer's impact extended across the Atlantic. After Breitbart started an office in London in 2012, it began supporting politician and former commodity trader Nigel Farage's fledgling efforts to catapult the idea of the UK leaving the European Union from a fringe issue to a mainstream one. At some point, Mercer and Farage became friendly. In 2015, Cambridge Analytica discussed ways to help the leaders of Leave EU, the political group that supported the UK's withdrawal from the European Union. Bannon was included as part of the email traffic between the two groups, though it's not clear he read or responded to the emails. The following month, Leave EU publicly launched a campaign to persuade British voters to support a referendum in favor of an exit from the European Union. Cambridge Analytica officials would deny charging for doing work for Leave EU. Even if the firm was not paid for its services, it laid some of the early groundwork for the Leave EU campaign argues journalist Jane Mayer. In June 2016, the UK voted to exit the European Union. Farage was one of the leaders of that campaign, though Leave EU wasn't selected as the effort's official organization. Brexit could not have happened without Breitbart, Farage says. As the 2016 presidential campaign got underway, the Mercers initially backed Texas Senator Ted Cruz, having been impressed by his willingness to shut the government down over debt concerns in 2013. They gave a pro-Cruz super PAC more than $13 million, but when Cruz dropped out of the race in May of that year, Rebecca accepted an invitation to meet Donald Trump's daughter Ivanka and her husband Jared Kushner for lunch at Trump Tower. Over sandwiches and salads, they bonded over parenting young children, among other things. Soon, the Mercers shifted their support to Trump, by then the party's effective nominee. They launched a super PAC to oppose Hillary Clinton, charging Kellyanne Conway, a veteran Republican pollster, with running the organization. Eventually, they'd become Trump's largest financial backers. By the middle of the summer, Trump was losing ground to Clinton, and victory didn't seem possible. On Saturday, August 13th, the New York Times published a front-page story detailing the campaign's ongoing chaos. Trump wouldn't use a teleprompter during his speeches, he couldn't stay on message, and he wasn't able to tame embarrassing leaks. Republican donors were jumping ship, and a landslide victory for Clinton seemed possible, even likely. Later that day, Bob Mercer called Bannon, asking what could be done to turn things around. Bannon outlined a series of ideas, 
including making Conway a more frequent presence on television to defend Trump. That sounds like a terrific idea, Mercer said. Later the same day, the Mercers boarded a helicopter to the East Hampton beachfront estate of Woody Johnson, the owner of the New York Jets, where GOP backers, including Wall Street investors Carl Icahn and Steve Mnuchin, were gathering to meet Trump. Clutching the Times story, Rebecca made a beeline for the candidate. It's bad, Trump acknowledged. No, it's not bad, it's over, she told Trump, unless you make a change. She told Trump she had a way for him to turn the election around. Bring in Steve Bannon and Kellyanne Conway, she said. I've talked to them, they'll do it. The next day, Bannon took an Uber to the Trump National Golf Club in Bedminster, New Jersey. After impatiently waiting for Trump to finish a round of golf, eat some hot dogs, and then finish an ice cream treat, Bannon made his pitch. No doubt you can win, Bannon told Trump. You just have to get organized. Before long, Bannon was running the campaign, and Conway was its manager, becoming a ubiquitous and effective television presence. Bannon helped instill order on the campaign, making sure Trump focused on two things, disparaging Clinton's character and promoting a form of nationalism that Bannon branded America First, a slogan that seemed to echo the short-lived America First Committee, a group that had levied pressure to prevent the U.S. from entering World War II and opposing Adolf Hitler. Bannon made headway on Trump's current behavior, but he couldn't do anything about his past actions. On October 7th, the Washington Post broke a story about outtake footage from the television show Access Hollywood, in which Trump bragged in lewd and graphic language about kissing, groping, and trying to bed women. When you're a star, they let you do it, Trump said. Mainstream Republicans condemned Trump, but the Mercers rushed out a full-throated statement of support. We are completely indifferent to Mr. Trump's locker room braggadocio, they said. We have a country to save, and there is only one person who can save it. We and Americans across the country and around the world stand steadfastly behind Donald J. Trump. Jim Simons was torn. Ever since he and his childhood friend, Jim Harple, had driven across the country and witnessed some of the hardships experienced by minorities and others, Simons had leaned left politically. He sometimes supported Republican candidates, but usually backed Democrats. By the middle of 2016, Simons had emerged as the most important supporter of the Democratic Party's priorities USA Action Super PAC and a key backer of Democratic House and Senate candidates. By the end of that year, Simons would donate more than $27 million to Democratic causes. Marilyn Simons was even more liberal than her husband, and Jim's son, Nathaniel, had established a nonprofit foundation focused on climate change mitigation and clean energy policy, issues the Trump campaign generally mocked or ignored. As Bob Mercer's political influence grew and his support for the Trump campaign expanded, Simons began hearing complaints from associates and others, most with the same general request. Can't you do something about him? Simons was in a difficult position. He only recently had become aware of Mercer's alliance with Bannon and some of his other political opinions. Simons couldn't understand how a scientist could be so dismissive of the threat of global warming, and he disagreed with Mercer's views. But Simons still liked Mercer. Yes, he was a bit eccentric and frequently uncommunicative, 
The mercer had always been pleasant and respectful to Simons. He's a nice guy, he insisted to a friend. He's allowed to use his money as he wishes. What can I do? Besides, Mercer was responsible for helping Medallion achieve some of its most important breakthroughs. Simons noted to some friends that it's illegal to fire someone for their political beliefs. Professional performance and political views are two separate things, Simons told someone. Both Medallion and RIEF were enjoying strong performance, and Mercer was doing a good job leading Renaissance with Brown, who himself wasn't devoting much time on the election. Brown didn't like spending his money. He also told a friend that his wife's experience in government had helped sour him on politics. The election might even help the hedge fund by bringing a dose of volatility to financial markets, Brown told at least one person. Mercer remained an outlier at the firm, politically, and there weren't any obvious signs that Mercer's outside activities were having a negative effect on the firm, reducing any impetus for Simons to act. With time, that would change. On election day, Trump's team didn't think he had a chance of winning. The Republican data team projected that Trump wouldn't win more than 204 electoral votes and that he would get trounced in key battleground states. Staffers and others in the campaign's war room, a space in Trump Tower that once housed the set for the television show The Apprentice, were despondent. At 5.01 p.m., David Bossie, a close ally of Bannon and Conway, who also had been installed in the campaign at the behest of Bob and Rebecca, received a phone call with early exit numbers. Trump was down in eight of 11 crucial states by five to eight percentage points, he was told. When the news was relayed to Trump, he snapped his flip phone closed and threw it across the room. What a waste of time and money, he said to no one in particular. Around nine o'clock, Bob Mercer made his way to the war room, wearing a posh three-piece gray suit. Taking a look at his outfit, Bannon joked that someone had invited rich Uncle Pennybags, the Monopoly mascot. Melania Trump joined the room, as did Trump's children, his running mate, Indiana Governor Mike Pence, New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, and others. They ate pizza and stared at a nearby wall that was mounted with six 75-inch televisions, all showing different networks. As more disappointing numbers came in, Trump turned morose. Hey, geniuses, he said to his team. How's this working for us? At one point, Fox News' Tucker Carlson called in. He's not going to win, will he? Then the results began to turn. Around one o'clock, Trump turned to Bossy, feeling elated. Dave, can you believe this? We just started this to have some fun. At 2.20 a.m., Conway received a call from an Associated Press editor. What state are you calling, she asked. We're not calling a state, he said. We're calling the race. As the election approached, Simons expressed concern. Clinton led in most voter polls, but she seemed to be making strategic miscalculations. Clinton's team reached out to Simons, saying that if he was going to make additional political donations that year, he should direct them to the party's effort to win control of the Senate. The Clinton camp seemed so confident of victory that they deemed additional help for their own campaign unnecessary. On election night, Jim and Marilyn watched the results at a friend's home. The group, all Clinton supporters, crowded around a television screen, nervous but upbeat. As the results rolled in, 
and it slowly became clear that Trump had a chance to win, the mood turned dark. Around 9.30 p.m., Simons had had enough. I'm going back to the apartment to have a drink, he told Abe Lackman, his political advisor. Want to come? Simons and Lackman quietly sipped red wine as they watched Trump seal the election. Before midnight, they turned the television off. They'd seen enough. We were pretty depressed, Lackman says.